Well, good morning. To begin with, I just want to read from 2 Peter chapter 1. I just want to open with that. We will be revisiting that chapter. The lesson's not on this entire chapter, however. I just want to open with reading from God's Word from 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 1 and I will read through verse 15. 2 Peter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to you which have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you through the acknowledging of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, according as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the acknowledging of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue, whereby most great and precious promises are given unto us, that by them ye should be partakers of the divine nature, in that ye flee the corruption which is in the world through lust. Therefore, give even all diligence thereunto. Join, moreover, virtue with your faith, and with virtue, knowledge, and with knowledge, temperance, and with temperance, patience, and with patience, godliness, and with godliness, brotherly kindness, and with brotherly kindness, love. For if these things be among you and abound, they will make you that ye neither shall be idle nor unfruitful in the acknowledging of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he that hath not these things is blind and cannot see far off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, brethren, Give rather diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For by this means an entering shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though that ye have knowledge and be established in the present truth. For I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Seeing I know that the time is at hand, that I must lay down this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. I will endeavor, therefore, always, that ye also may be able to have remembrance of these things after my departing. So I hope today to stir you up by way of remembrance, something that you may be very familiar with in the Word, but... Hopefully, this will stir you up and challenge you to think more about it. The topic of today's lesson is government. Government. We'll be talking about government, but we need to define our terms. And so to define terms, where do we usually turn? We turn to a dictionary. So I would like to take us to Noah Webster's dictionary. Now, Noah Webster was born in 1758. He lived through the American Revolution and you may be familiar with the, the term Webster's Dictionary. And the dictionary that today goes by the name Webster, however, is very different than the one that Noah Webster wrote in 1828. And for the sake of time, I had a bunch of examples from that dictionary, but I don't want to get into them. But I do want to, want to give you the definition that he has for government. So since we'll be talking about that, we need to define exactly what we're talking about. And there's a couple different ways you could use that term. So first... 
let me give you the modern definition of government from a, a modern dictionary, which goes by the name of Webster. But this is what it says. It says, government, the group of people who control and make decisions for a country, state, etc. A particular system used for controlling a country, state, etc. The process or manner of controlling a country, state, etc. Okay, that's the modern definition. That's how we usually use government. But this, and that was the primary definition from the modern dictionary. But now here's Webster's diction, uh, def definition from 1828 for government. Government, direction, regulation. These precepts will serve for the government of our conduct. Control, restraint. Men are apt to neglect the government of their temper and passions. So for Webster, and in early America, the primary definition for government was, was not what we use today, usually when we talk about government. His primary definition was not the concept of the people that are over a country or a nation, but his first definition was governing yourself, controlling your own tempers, your own passions, your own appetites. And so his first two definitions primarily referred to the self. Now, he goes on to other definitions as well, but the primary one he gives for government is that of self-government, to control yourself, to govern your own mind, and govern your own spirit. Now, the reason that there's been a change in this uh, is, is at least to show we have a loss of understanding concerning the governments that God has instituted over his creation. So there is one government which is over all, over all other governments. And that is the government of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's reigning over all governments. Uh, the increase of his government and peace shall have no end. From Isaiah 9-7. So he's rolling and reigning. And he's the governor of all lesser governments. And every lesser government is to operate according to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now typically we, we think of four, four types of governments that God has instituted under the one government of Christ. So... One of them is the civil government. The civil government's role is to punish those who do evil and to protect those who do good, according to God's word. So you have that civil government, but you also have church government. And you also have family government. But at the foundation of that, and where Webster's definition starts, you have self-government. You have the, the government of the individual. So you have civil, church, family, and self. Now there are a couple ways... There's also another definition for self-government when it comes to people who are self-governed according to God's word individually apply that to their communities. And that, that's a definition of self-government that for a large part our nation was founded upon. But we will not be talking about the aspect of self-government as it applies to the civil government. We're starting at the, the very the foundation of what does it mean to be self-governed according to God's word. So we usually use the term self-control when we talk about being self-governed as an individual. When it comes to controlling ourselves and managing ourselves, we usually learn, use the term self-control. But as you'll see, I wanted to bring back that term government and show you how we used to use that term more in line with a, a, a more all-encompassing understanding of the different governments that God has given. And now we, we typically think of just the civil government. So we'll be talking about self-government or self-control. And the first passages that I want us to look at to see what the Lord Jesus Christ would have his church learn about being self-controlled 
will both be from the book of Proverbs. So if you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16, we'll start there. And there are two passages, as I said, in the book of Proverbs, where we learn from the Lord how he wants his saints to be self-governed or self-controlled. So Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 Proverbs 16:32 says he that is slow unto anger is better than the mighty man and he that ruleth his own mind is better than he that winneth a city Now the phrase I want to focus on is the second half here and we'll look at this proverb and then compare it with another one But if you look at this proverb if you look in your bible it'll say something that he ruleth his mind or he rules his spirit and the Hebrew word there, to rule, is mashal, and it does mean to have dominion or to reign. And it's used many times in the Old Testament. In 2 Chronicles 9, it's used in reference to King Solomon, where he is said to have reigned over all the kings from the river, even unto the land of the Philistines, and to the border of Egypt. So that, that Hebrew term is used to explain how Solomon governed and managed all these different kingdoms. He was in control. He knew what was going on. He knew his strengths. He knew his weaknesses as a, as a leader. Uh, he knew the, the weaknesses in the land. He knew all the different things he had to, to, to manage and govern those different kingdoms. And if you've ever coached or, or even taught or had any sort of leadership position, you know you have to not just be able to, to speak or have a vision, but you need to be able to manage and to understand whether it's a sports team, your players, what their strengths and weaknesses are. So the, the image here in Proverbs 16.32 and the correlation to the one that rules his mind is better than one that wins a city. So the correlation is to one who wins a city, to a military or political conqueror who goes into a city and conquers that city and takes over that city. He doesn't just go in there and destroy the city. But he goes in, takes the city, and conquers it to himself. So he's not just destroying. He's able to manage and govern that city and take over that city and use it for his own resources. So the picture is one who can manage resources and understands his troops and understands his enemy. He is proactive, and he understands his own strengths and weaknesses. He understands what he needs to do, and he's able to react to different scenarios. So the one in ancient times... And even today, but the one who would take a city needed to train his troops. He couldn't be passive. He needed to be active. He needed to understand the, the difficulties that he would face, and he needed to prepare his troops for that. And the Lord Jesus Christ would have his church learn from this text that the one who can govern and manage himself and his mind and his spirit to know his strengths and weaknesses and to train himself for godliness is better than that one who can do, do that with a thousand troops. He can conquer a city who can conquer a nation, who can lead the, the United States of America. The Lord Jesus Christ is telling us it's more important for you to govern your own mind and govern your own spirit than to have any sort of power over anything else. That's primary. There was a, a, a czar of Russia, Russia, by worldly standards, a great leader called Peter the Great. And Peter the Great conquered nations. He built an empire from 
the rubble, as it were, of Russia from a backwater nation and, and raised them up to, to, to be a great nation. But he's been quoted as saying this. This is what Peter the Great said. He said, I've, I've conquered an empire, but I have not been able to conquer myself. So Christ would have us learn that no matter what you, you, you can do conquering nations, if you can't conquer yourself, if you can't govern your own mind and your own spirit, it's, 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 not, it's to no avail. It's to no avail. So the one who rules his mind and rules his spirit, and remember the Hebrew word here is, is govern, uh, is, is, is a mighty man. So keep that in mind. And turn now to Proverbs 25. We just want to look at these two verses in the introduction here, or to open, I should say, and then we'll get into why this is so important. So we set these two verses up beside each other, Proverbs 25, 28. And when we put this verse beside the other one, we'll see the picture that the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to have of what it means to be self-governed and self-controlled. So Proverbs 25, 28. A man that refraineth not his appetite is like a city which is broken down and without walls. Now I know your translation might, uh, will be slightly different, but what the Hebrew word there is the word for restrain. I know in the ESV it says the man who has self-control. They put that there, I think, because the, in this passage, the Hebrew word means to refrain. So the Hebrew is actually in Proverbs 16, to govern your spirit, and Proverbs 25, it's to restrain your spirit. The idea is to hold back, to be holding something back. It's used in Numbers 16 to speak of the plague of God being restrained, being held back from the people. Okay? So here, Christ would have his church understand that self-government includes not just the governing and the managing of our mind and who we are, but the restraining of sinful desires, the restraining of certain things, the holding back desires, some which can be good in and of themselves, but led to excess become bad. And sometimes the desires are just inordinate desires, sinful desires, which is usually a twist of a good desire. So we have to manage our thinking and our mind and, and restrain sinful desires, and we'll get into that. But the picture here is important. The, the imagery from Proverbs, and, and the Proverbs are so full of imagery, and there's so much that the Lord would have us learn from this. So where in Proverbs 16, it was an offensive picture. It was, if you can govern your mind, you are like one who can conquer a city. Whereas here, it's more of a defensive imagery given. It said, if you don't have walls around your city, you are totally defenseless. And in ancient times, a city without walls was pretty easy to conquer. If they didn't have walls or if the walls were broken down, the battle was almost over. If you remember the battle of Jericho, when this was a the city had huge walls, that was their defense system. Now they had troops, but without the walls, they were pretty much defenseless. And so when, when the Lord knocked down the walls, the scripture says every man just went straight up ahead of him and went into the city. So the walls... In the ancient culture, in the, to the original audience, were the core of a city's defense. And if you didn't have those walls, you're defenseless. So today it would be sort of as if a nation had lots of troops, lots of soldiers, lots of weapons, lots of fighter jets and, and weapon systems, but no ammunition, 
no bullets in their guns, no, no missiles on their jets, no, no intercontinental ballistic missiles, none of that stuff. It's just an empty shell. No walls. No walls. Yeah, yeah. And so it, that's the picture here. It didn't matter if, if you don't have your primary defense system, it doesn't matter what else you have, you're just ripe for destruction. And so the scripture and the Lord would teach us here that if we don't have self-control, you're open to attack and enslavement. It's not just that you'll be attacked, because when someone attacks you, as we read here, to win the city, they're attacking you for a purpose. And they're not just, you're not, you won't just be damaged, but you'll be given over to be ruled and governed by someone else. So if you are not self-controlled, you are defenseless, and you will be given over to be governed by another. So as I said, no matter what outward appearance a nation may have, if you don't have self-control, and as an individual, if you don't have self-control, you may have a show of godliness, perhaps. You may have... Uh, an appearance of godliness. You may read your Bible, you may go to church meetings, you may even pray, but if, if you are not self-controlled, you're in a dangerous position. If you are not exercising those means of grace, you may have the show of godliness, but you're denying the power thereof, and you're in a dangerous position. So, usually, when we talk about self-control, we are referencing this idea here in Proverbs 25, 28 which is to restrain something. And, and that's good. But I want to combine these two Proverbs, that not, not just to restrain, which is very important, but to manage and govern. <clears throat> Remember the two Hebrew words. One is to manage and govern, and one is to restrain. So they're two separate images there to help us understand this. Now, that's a brief overview from these two proverbs of what the picture here of, of being self-governed is. To manage your mind, to manage your thoughts, to manage yourself, and to restrain sinful desires. Now when we go into application, we'll try to apply these things so we can understand how we can be self-governed and what it would look like in our lives. But before I do that, I want us to see how important self-control is and why it's so important why is it why is it so important and why is it so dangerous if we don't have it and what are some other things to learn about concerning self-control so turn with me in your bible to acts chapter 24 Before we go into application, as I said, I want us to consider four things about self-control in general. Four things about self-control in general. The centrality of self-control, the cause of self-control, the comfort of self-control, and the consequences of self-control. The centrality, the cause, the comfort, and the consequences. So first of all, the centrality of self-control. Self-control is so important because it is central to the Christian faith. If someone asked you, what are the essentials of faith in Christ? What, 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 th what three things could you give me to summarize 
or three bullet points that we could talk of, talk off of that would talk about Christian faith. Well, the Holy Spirit has given us, as it were, those three things. When when the Apostle Paul was speaking with Felix in Acts chapter twenty-four, and I'll be reading in verse twenty-four, the Holy Spirit in His divine wisdom tells us the three things that Paul talked about when he was talking about faith in Christ. So look at Acts 24, 24. And after certain days came Felix with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess. And he called forth Paul and heard him of the faith in Christ. And as he disputed of righteousness and temperance and of the judgment to come, Felix trembled. And he answered, Go thy way for this time. And when I have convenient time, I will call for thee. So the Apostle Paul, and he no doubt elucidated and went through these things, but the three main things that he talked about with Felix, the three things which pricked Felix's conscience, what were those three things? Righteousness, that God is holy and pure, and, the, and he is totally good, and we are not. And the coming judgment, the day is coming when the Lord will call to account everyone for their actions and, and motives and thoughts and words. And there is one who's been raised from the dead who will be the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was the third thing that he talked about? Temperance or self-control. Now we don't often think of self-control as essential to the Christian faith, as something that we would right away start talking about. But that's what the Holy Spirit is, having, is pointing out to us here, that this is right smack dab in the middle of Paul's explanation of faith in Christ. You have this phrase, self-control or temperance. So this is not an optional facet of Christianity. Self-control is not for some super spiritual Christians, and then you have the other Christians over here who can sort of just go along through life and, and let go and let God take over. And there is a danger... I think perhaps in some reformed circles even, the danger is to think that because God is sovereign, and he is, and because he's in control of all things, and he is, but because of that, we can think that God's just going to zap us and make us self-control. We say God's just going to act, and all we have to do is sit back, maybe say a few prayers, maybe read the Bible, and then ask God to give me self-control, and sit back and let God do that for us. And if we don't have it yet, and if we're not growing in that self-control, well, we might say, well, I'm waiting on the Lord to give me that self-control. And the Lord has been gracious to me, and I trust that he will give me deliverance over this in the future. But until then, I can't do anything about it. I'm not really going to work hard and strive and put in the effort. Sometimes we can think that way. Because we can think that if anything involves effort or hard work, it's unspiritual. But we should never buy that lie. It's a horrid lie from the pit of hell that says faith in Christ is a life of passive obedience to God's commands. Just sitting back and not taking action and not girding up the loins of our mind. That's a dangerous thing. And it's, it's not biblical and it's, it's very dangerous because it leads people into many dangerous things, false assurance and a false understanding of what Christian faith faith is, faith in Christ is. Now, but the other er the other error when dealing with self control 
is to approach self-control, the government of yourself, like a secularist. And it would be a mistake to approach self-control like someone like Benjamin Franklin did. Benjamin Franklin tried to order his life and, and tried to be temperate in many things. But he was, not, he was not able to do that in a way that would honor, honor Christ. He could not have true victory over self and sin and have true self-government that would honor God because he sought to do that outside of Christ. And the, the Puritan Richard Sibb said that outside of Christ, God is terrible. You try to do this outside of Christ, it's a fearful thing. And the, the, the proper end of self-control, and we'll get into this later, is to love and honor God. And so, there's a, there's a, false, there's a false way to approach this. Uh, and the, the 1689 Confession talks about doing good works, and how unregenerate men may try to do good works. And self-control is one of those things which God requires of all people, and we could put it in that category of a good work. To be, to be self-governed and self-controlled, to refrain from anger and many other things as we'll look at. But the, the confession says that if they're not done in a right manner, according to the word, or to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful, sinful and cannot please God and make a man meet to receive grace from God. So that's the other error, is to do this in a way as a secularist would. And we'll cover that a little bit more later. So that's reason number one, the centrality of self-control. It's central to faith in Christ. If you're going to be a Christian, self-control is not optional. Number two, the cause of self-control. The cause of self-control. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Of course, you're familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. And self-control is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperancy. Against such, there is no law. So self-control, self-government is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Godly self-control, which the Lord requires of His church, the members of His church, is a fruit from the very Spirit of God. And if you look at these qualities of the, Holy, of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, you'll see how they're bookended. On one end, you have love. In the beginning, you have love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And love is, so, is, is, is central to the Christian life as well. And as I said, if we are doing anything that is not done from the motive of love, it's, it's, it's sinful. Love first for God and second for our neighbor. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So we are to love God. And when the Spirit works in someone's heart and makes them a believer, they have that love for God. And that's to define everything they do. Because if we, no matter what we do, if we sell all we have, if, we're, if we order our life, but we have no love for God, we are nothing. Right? That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. So the Christian life is a life of love. But the last quality 
and how it's listed here in Galatians 5 is self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit is bookended by love in the front and, and self-control in the end. And that's not a coincidence. Self-control allows us to operate the Christian life. It allows us to exercise really the other fruits of the Spirit. Because it allows us to restrain our sinful desires and instead exercise love regardless of how we feel. So self-control really gives you the structure and the ability to say no to sin and to choose to love even when you don't feel like it. Since love is to define all we do, self-control gives us the ability and the freedom to act in love despite our feelings and appetites. So we have to choose to act in love despite our feelings and appetites. And remember though, this is, a, this is the fruit of the Spirit. But I do want to read this quote from the 1689 Confession because this, again, the danger, I want to remind us of the danger of, because this is a fruit, of thinking there's nothing we need to do in regards to being self-controlled. Let me read this quote. This is, this is talking about believers. Their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. Yet they are not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty, unless upon a special motion of the Spirit. But they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. So in other words, we're not supposed to sit back and wait for a special revelation from the Spirit or a special prompting to be self-controlled or to do anything which God requires of us. We are to be diligent ourselves in stirring up that grace of God that is in us. In, in taking thoughts captive and girding up the loins of our mind and preparing our mind for action. So that's very important. There's a, there might be a tension here in your mind, but the Lord designed it that way. We are, every good thing comes from Him. We are not to thereby become complacent. We are to work hard, harder than anyone else from our, our mind, knowing it's not I, but the grace of God, as Paul said. So reason three... Uh, the self-control is so important, is the comfort of self-control. So we talked about the centrality, the cause, which is the Holy Spirit, now the comfort of self-control. Self-control is a great comfort to the believer, as it is a piece of evidence or a sign of true salvation. We are to exercise self-control to make our calling and election sure. That's why I read 2 Peter chapter 1. And you remember, it called us to add to our knowledge, self-control. We are to add self-control. We are to strive to make that calling and election sure. We are to give all diligence thereunto to make that calling and election sure. And right in the middle of that list of things is temperance. So Peter, I should say, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that the man of faith, or the woman of faith, is a man or woman who should be growing and exercising self-control. And those struggling with assurance... <coughs> must exercise self-control and grow in godliness to make their calling and election sure, and to be fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. So self-control, self-government is not optional. It's a necessity. And it's a dangerous thing to be a Christian who's not exercising self-control. You're in a pressure, you're in a precarious situation uh, if, you, if that's you, and, if, and you're defenseless against your lusts and your appetites if you're not governing your mind and your desires. And you'll spoil any assurance that you might that you could have, any assurance of your salvation, if you neglect what God requires of us here. And you'll be completely unfruitful. 
And if you're a true child of God, God will deal with you, and he will, he will discipline you for this. But I wouldn't want to stay in that situation. Because if, if we are in a position where we are not governing and controlling our mind, we will have no assurance of our salvation, and it might be then we will just be given over to sin and lust. And, and those who are lax and lazy and do not fight to exercise self-control put themselves in a most woeful and miserable state because they fail to exercise the means that God has provided for their good and their assurance and their growth. So that's the comfort of self-control. It's a comforting thing to be self-governed according to God's word. Reason four, the consequences of self-control. I just want to touch on this briefly before we go into some application. And this will just hint at the other areas of government, just vaguely. Self-governed people determine the course of a nation. There's a quote here from Gary DeMar who says, Self-governed people who acknowledge the sovereignty of God determine a nation's future. Now, the fundamental problem with mankind is that they're in rebellion against God. They're in rebellion against the one true sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that rebellion, mankind fail at self-government. They cannot govern themselves. They cannot control themselves according to God's word. And they attempt autonomy, but mankind always gives up that government of himself, even at the deepest level, to another. And so self-government, Christian self-government, is not autonomy. It's not us ruling our own lives apart from God. It's us governing our passions and our thoughts and our desires according to God's word. But when, but when men in, in their rebellion against God and in their sinfulness say that I will live as a law unto myself, they are never free from the government of another. They, they will be ruled, and it's either by Christ or it's by sin and Satan. And it goes without saying that has a huge impact on a society or a nation. And when you look at this, if you see men unable to govern themselves, the nation goes downhill very fast. Because one of the things that happens is in man's folly, they turn to another. Not just internally where they're, they're turning themselves over to sin and Satan, but they turn to another to, to govern their life. And often, and we see this ha has happened in America, they've turned to the civil government to say, we need you to take care of us, to provide for us, to help us make decisions. And I would just add as a note, one of the reasons for the rise of, in social, of socialism and statism in America has been the decline of biblical theology, of Calvinistic biblical theology. I've heard from one source that around at the time of the revolution that 90% of Americans were Calvinistic in their theology. Now, of course, I don't know if all of them were truly saved, but there's a, a more general understanding of the Reformed faith. And I pray that God would bring that back, a true reformed, robust theology, because there was a time when at least many people in America understood, understood this, understood the, the reformed faith and Calvinism, and they had the understanding that man is to be self-governed, starting first with his passions, and that God has given uh, limited roles to each government. Now, I'm hopeful that that will happen again, whether it's in this nation or another nation, but the point here is simply that when we are not governed as individuals, it has huge impact on society. So the hope for America and the hope for any nation is that the Holy Spirit would work 
and people would be self-governed according to God's word, and that would, would flow into every other government, the family government, that families would be governed according to God's word, the church and the civil government. So just think about that. When we give up that government, we always turn to another. We always turn to someone else to govern us. We can never be free from a, a, a governing principle, a governor over us, giving us the way we ought to operate. And God has designed us to be self-governed according to his word. So the consequences of self-control is that those people that are self-controlled will determine the course of a nation by first governing, their fam governing themselves, their families, the church, and uh, the civil government. So now let's get into some application from this, an application on this. We've covered what self-government is generally. We've covered why it's important. I want us to get into some application and see how we can apply this to our lives. How can we apply self-government to our lives? And I have eight, eight, eight areas here, and there could be more, but I have eight areas here for us to think about how we can exercise self-control. Your mind, your money, Excuse me, your mind, your mouth, your money, your emotions, your anger, your appetite, your passions, and your priorities. As I said, there could be many more. We'll just look at these eight. So first, your mind. You're to exercise self-control over your mind. And I put this first because this is sort of foundational to all the rest. And this is key to the application. We are to exercise self-control over our mind. And the scripture is full of this. One of my favorite passages is in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, where God's word says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. When we're called, up to, when we're called to gird up the loins of our mind, to prepare our minds for action, to be sober, to be sober-minded. Think about how when we talk about being sober and refraining from drinking alcohol, being able to say no to alcohol so that we can think clearly and act clearly. That's the same thing with being sober-minded. We're not Just as we're not to be given to excess drink, we're not to be given to excess thought that would dishonor the Lord and, or, and that would not bring us closer to Him. That's one of the reasons. Drunkenness is so wicked and, and so dangerous because it takes us away from conformity to Christ. We give our our whole mind and body over to be governed by alcohol. We're said to be under the influence of alcohol. And that's why it's such a, a dangerous thing. But we're called to, be this, to do the same thing with our minds. You are not the victim of your thoughts. You are not the victim of your thoughts. You are to take every thought captive. In 2 Corinthians 10.5. So we're to take those thoughts captive for the obedience of Christ. And you need to control your thinking. And take responsibility for it and bring it into conformity to Christ. Now, there are a lot of different ways this could work out. I'll try and give you a couple of examples here. Husbands, control the way you're thinking about your wife. Are you thinking honoring thoughts of her? Are you thinking thoughts that, uh, how thankful you are for her and lifting her up in your mind? Are you thinking those thoughts about her? And wives, control the way you're thinking about your husbands. Are you thinking honoring thoughts of your husband and respectful thoughts? 
right? Or do you have thoughts of bitterness? Are you, are you harboring those thoughts? If you're, if you're, because we can be tempted. If someone does something to us, we can let those thoughts continue. And say, say my wife uh, responded in a certain way. I can just continue to think, you know, why should she have done that? She shouldn't do that. And instead of, or someone could do something to me and I could just be harboring those bitter thoughts, right? And saying, well, I just can't help it. These are just my thoughts and I can't help it. If this happened to you, you'd be thinking the same way too. But we're to govern those thoughts. We're to, 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 to put on the right ones. And so we're to take control of that and say, no, that's not the way I should be thinking about so-and-so. That's not how I should be thinking about this situation. Children, what about the way you think about your parents and the obedience that God requires of you? What, what do you think about when you think about that? When you're all alone and you're thinking, do you let your thoughts run to excess and allow your mind to dwell on thoughts that don't honor God? We're to govern those thoughts and control our thinking. We're not victims of our thoughts. We're to have self-control over our mind. It could be worrying you could be thinking excessively about the future. You could say, well, that's just happening. I just need to pray more, and hopefully these thoughts will go away. Well, yes, we need to pray, but while we're praying to the Lord, we need to take control and put off those thoughts. We can't just sit back and say, well, hopefully God will take these thoughts away, because we are to control those thoughts. And the saved person will exercise these fruits and will put God's word into practice and will discipline his mind or her mind to put those thoughts off. And it's a battle. So it's not enough just to know that we are to do these things and to know how we are to think and to know that if we're saved by grace and God's going to help us. It's not enough to know that. We need to exercise God's fruits. We can't just have the appearance of godliness but deny the power thereof. We have to govern our mind. So bring the truth of Scripture to bear in your thinking. Whatever you're thinking about, bring the truth of Scripture to bear. That's why it's so important to meditate on the Word and be in the Word, so that you can bring truth to bear on whatever you're thinking about. As the psalmist says, is praise the Lord, O my soul. He's reminding himself how he should be thinking. He should be praising the Lord. He should speak to your soul and your mind and ask God to bless you and help you while you do that. Now thoughts can enter our mind. But the question is, how do we then govern these thoughts? You'll be tempted to think many things. All right? You'll be tempted to think lots of thoughts. But when those thoughts enter your mind, if it's not honoring to God, you need to be the governor of your mind and put those thoughts out. Replace it with biblical truth. If you're anxious, to, to, to fight that anxiety and realize the biblical truth, to put on the right thought of what God's word would, would have you there. Now, this is so foundational, and the other ones will, will, will sort of come back to it. So that's the first area. We're to govern our mind. Be self-controlled in how you think. Be, be diligent and disciplined to understand your thinking. Remember, the, the, the person who can conquer a city understands his troops. He understands the weaknesses he has and the strength. Do you understand how you think? Do you understand your thought patterns? Where you're tempted to think, where you're most tempted to think thoughts that are not honoring to God? Well, the second area where we need to exercise self-control is our mouth. We need to have self-control over our tongue. Because when it comes to our speech, we really see how important the first part is. Because if we're sober-minded and taking every thought captive, our tongue will be the first place to demonstrate that often. Or on the other side, if we're not self-controlled, if we are not governing our thinking and taking thoughts captive, 
Oftentimes, the first place that people will see that, and you might see it in yourself, is how you respond, how you use your tongue. So, this is why James says that if any man sin not in word, he is a perfect man, and able to bridle all the body, in James chapter 3, verse 2. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we can govern our mouth, it shows us that we're governing our heart and mind, and we're in control of what we're thinking, and therefore what we're saying. So this will... How do you respond to people? How do you respond to your husband? How do you respond to your wife? How do you respond to your children? How do you, how do you react to your children? How do you react to a friend who wants to bring you some truth from Scripture to your life? So we're to exercise self-control over our tongue, over what we say. Are we gossiping? Does it just roll off our tongue? Are we thinking about what we're saying? Speech is so powerful. The Lord has given us speech, and it's such a powerful thing. It's something we should not be careless about. We should not be careless about how we speak and what we say. And the careless person will not be careful. And the proverb says that the man who is hasty in his words will fall into destruction. That's, that's a paraphrase. But the one who is hasty, if you see a man who is hasty in his words, there is more hope for a fool than for him. If you are not controlling your words, there is more hope for a fool than for you. That's Proverbs 29, 20. So are we... Controlling that? Are we using the Lord's name in a dishonoring way? Are we, are we saying things that are mean-spirited? Are we cutting people down? And you say, well, I can't help that. Well, if you can't help that, you're not a Christian. You can help it. The question is, are you trying to? Are you controlling your speech? Are you taking steps to govern thinking in this area so that God's word is preeminent in your mind and then what comes out of your mouth is honoring to him? If you cannot control that, then you do not have the spirit of Christ in you. And if you do, you need to stir up the grace of God in you to obey him and call out to him for help as you do that. So your mouth, we need to control our mouth. Number three, very briefly, you need to have self-control over your use of your money. Right? We need to have self-control when it comes to finances. We need to control what we spend and how we spend it. Now, the pocketbook can be a challenge for many Christians. And especially in our society, if I want it now. And so for all these things, you might find yourself struggling with one thing more than another. But there are many people who struggle with the use of their money. And they are not able to use control and restraint to spend what they need, just what they need, and to not go into excess. And it's very tempting in our culture because of credit cards and things such as that. But we need to govern our, our, the use of our money, to be self-governed in that. Right? To be controlled. And to be able to handle our resources. And we should teach our children that as well. Number four. As I said, these could be expanded a lot. But for the sake of time, I want to try and get to all eight of these. Number four, your emotions. Now many people think you can't control your emotions. But the scripture calls us to rejoice. Calls us to, to be hopeful. Calls us, calls us to... to be happy, really, in some ways. Now, it's not a, a superficial happiness that ignores struggles that we're going through, but yet we're called to rejoice. And, and the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of that power might be of God and not of us. We are afflicted on every side, yet we are not in distress. We are in doubt, but yet we despair not. And in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore we faint not, though our outward man perish. Now how can Paul say that? All this stuff is going on. 
afflictions, all these struggles and all these things. And he says, we don't faint. We have hope. Now, if that's not emotions, then maybe we have a different definition. But we, we will be tempted to, dis, to be in despair. Right? But we are called to hope in God. And so we are called to exercise self-control over those emotions. And we cannot say, well, I can't control my emotions. We have to bring God's truth to bear on the situation and on our emotions. So if you're, it could be any emotion. If you're dissatisfied, if you're not content, if you're ungrateful, and you find yourself thinking these things, see, it all goes back to governing our mind. That's sort of the foundation. But you need to, to take those thoughts, put those thoughts off and choose to think a different thought. And to respond to your emotions as someone who's in control of them and not governed by them. And even if you, you have this struggle in your mind, don't act according to that emotion. That's another way we can have self-control over our emotions. If we're feeling despair or distress and not hoping in God, and then that leads us to act in certain ways, when we know we should be exercising the means of grace and reading the word and praying and fellowshipping with the saints, don't act in accordance with your emotions. Be self-controlled over them to be governed by them and to not let them govern you. And act in accord with God's word. And if you're a Christian, you can do that. And if you can't, then, then that's why you need to, to, to get on your face and ask the Lord to change your heart. So, we need to govern our emotions. Don't let them run to excess. Curtail them. Bring them into conformity. And act according to God's word. Number five. We're to have self-control over our anger. This goes with emotions, but deserves its own category. It was even in Proverbs 16.32, it says the one who is slow to anger is better than the mighty man. So we are to control our temper. Right? This is another one that can be so obvious to us. We know people, and maybe we've been that way ourselves, who are quick-tempered and, eas and easily angered, and they are not slow to anger. So when, when your children frustrate you, this is where I see in my life where God has give, gives me many opportunities to exercise self-control over my, over my temper or anger. Because we can be tempted to, to respond in anger, but we are to govern that. And so when, you, when your children frustrate you and continually disobey, and, and, and you get frustrated, and you, and you respond in anger. If God responded with anger every time we stubbornly disobeyed and didn't get what he was teaching us, that would be a frightful thing. God, God disciplines his children but he, he's not wrathful toward his children. He's not wrathful towards them. He lovingly disciplines them. And so if our children frustrate us and we're getting angry, realizing, realize that you, yeah, that's demonstrating you have a need for self-control in that area of your life. You are not governing your anger. No matter what the situation, we are to govern our temper and our anger and respond in the way that God responds to us as his children. He doesn't respond in wrath to us. He's patient and kind, and disciplines us for our good. So that's an area in life, if you're a parent, you can really see where you can possibly work on this, on self-control. So take action, come before God and plead with Him. And while you're doing that, put off those thoughts. So I will not respond this way, I will not respond with that angry word to my son or my daughter, because I realize that I do the same thing to my Heavenly Father. He doesn't respond to me that way. He responds to me with loving discipline. And we are not to respond with wrath to our children. 
wrath or anger, or any, anyone, or any situation, or anything that happens. We could be frustrated at something, you know, we have a short fuse, something doesn't go well, and we respond with anger. That's a dangerous, to be that kind of person is very dangerous. To not be self-controlled in governing yourself, to, to bring that into conformity to Christ. And if you do not, that's where you spoil, you, you do great damage to your assurance as a Christian. If you're not growing in these things, you do great damage to your assurance. <clears throat> Number six, your appetite. Right? I include here eating and drinking together, your appetite. Now, the scripture does not lack examples for this one. Do we eat to excess? Proverbs 22, 20, and 21 says, Keep not company with drunkards, nor with gluttons. For the drunkard and the glutton shall be poor, and the sleeper shall be clothed with rags. So, I have to tell you, in this one, I've been, I've been convicted of this in my own life. And I've had to work on controlling my eating habits. Uh, and if you exercise self-control in small things, it helps you to exercise it in the big things. And, and when you exercise self-control in all these things, you're actually happier. You're a much happier person if you're not governed by your thoughts and your emotions. And that's not the prime product, but it is a byproduct of glorifying God. So, and there's something about, just with regards to eating, about eating just, just to the point where you're still a little bit hungry. It keeps you alert and active, and you actually feel better. When you eat to excess and you don't control your appetite, you never feel good anyway. And we already talked about drunkenness and how it's uh, to control our drinking. Uh, so, those who give themselves, give themselves over to their appetites fall into, into very uh, deplorable situations and they're, they're not controlled and, and they don't even feel well. And so one of the things I've had to do was to exercise self-control to have one serving at a meal, just one plate and that's it. And that's been very helpful to me to exercise that self-control. I remember Pastor MacArthur talking about sometimes just exercising self-control just for the sake of it, just so that you remind yourself that you're still in control of your appetites and emotions. There might be a donut there or something. And to say... You really, want, you really want that donut, but you say, I'm going to exercise self-control. Every now and then to remind yourself that you are still in control. Now, what we can be tempted to do is when we don't want the donut, to say, well, I'm going to exercise self-control now. So that later, when we do want it, we can say, well, I exercised self-control last time, so I don't need to do it now. So these are things you have to, to think about yourself and in your own mind. And obviously, I don't know when you will or won't be doing that. But that's just a helpful piece of advice. To always be aware of your appetite and your desires and to be in control of that, so that you would govern that. Uh, number seven, to speed through these, control your passions, your, your desires, your lust. I'm running out of time here, so let's give a quick overview of this one. Uh, control adultery of the mind. Uh, it's, it's a horrendous sin. Which Christ died for his people. So battle those thoughts. In our culture, it's, it's very easy to buy into the lie that it doesn't matter what we think as long as we don't do a certain thing. But control the way you think regarding um, sexuality and your lust and, and control those things. And don't think that you can withstand the temptation, young people, if you don't govern your thinking when you're put in that situation. You have to govern your thinking about how you think about these things. Exercise self control over what you watch. Does it tempt you sexually? Um, the internet, if that's a problem, 
you need to just get rid of it. Sometimes self-control includes the removing even the possibility of being tempted. It takes self-control to do that. Uh, if, it, if you're having a problem with the internet and things like that. Self-control includes taking the actions in your life that you need to take so that you're honoring to God. Whatever needs to be cut out of your life, that's what you need to do. So I could say more there, but I'll move on to number eight, and then we can wrap up. Number eight, final area here is your priorities. Exercise self-control in the management of your priorities and the use of your time. Redeem the time. We need to prioritize, and we need to have self-control to do that, so we're using our time wisely and perhaps doing what's most important first. Right? To have self-control to be in the Word and pray to the Lord. And perhaps most important in regards to self-control, to, to meditate on the Word. So it might be easy for you to do some of those things, to, to read or to, even, to pray, or, but then to, to, to meditate on the Word and force your mind to do that. And the psalmist says in Psalm 1 that it says his, the, 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 the man who's blessed, the man who's blessed, his delight is on the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So we can be tempted to think that that should be easy. That's not easy. That take, it takes hard work and self-control to do these things. And if we think they're easy, we're, we're not really understanding this. And I'll touch on that in the conclusion here in our, in our final few minutes. So those eight areas are where we can begin to exercise self-control. And we need to be doing that. We need to be doing that. Now, the way we exercise, the way we build self-control is by exercising it in the little things too. So we talked about eating, could be anything, or speech. Start exercising self-control. It's not, the question isn't, what can I get away with? So many people uh, think about, especially in the American church in general, think about Christianity as just, it's what can I get away with? As long as it's not strictly forbidden in Scripture, I can do it. But that's not how we should be thinking as Christians. We should not be thinking, what can I get away with? Or what am I allowed to do? But what is most edifying to me? What is going to help me the most to be a self-controlled, self-disciplined person. Let me give you a quick example here. <clears throat> Imagine someone maybe struggling with lust, or it could be, it could be anything. You just pick the, pick the topic. It could be spending, credit cards, whatever. And this person's struggling, <clears throat> excuse me, and they come to, to another brother who's been trying to be disciplined according to God's word and relying upon God, and, and the one who's struggling says, I know you're self-controlled in this area. How do you do it? Give me, I want to be self-controlled. I want to have self-control so that I don't fall into this lust. And so I start to talk, and the brother who's been working on it says, well, okay, brother, I would recommend that you, you take this thing out of your life, and you take, take this area, and maybe stop doing that. And, and you should probably, even though you could do this, you should probably remove that because that's not really helpful to you. And so the other brother starts to kind of get a little uncomfortable. He starts to, he feels styles being a little bit cramped. And he, and he says, you know, I, it starts to sound a little legalistic to him. Give me all these rules. And he says, all I really want is self-control. I, I just don't want, I just want to be able to say no to this sin so that when that happens, I have self-control. That's all I want. I don't, and, and then the other friend says, well, you know, you want self-control, but you don't want to exercise self-control. I'm giving you these things in your life where you could exercise self-control and some of them might even prevent you from sinning and close the door on the opportunity and yet you don't want that because you say, well, I'm free, I can do that so I don't need to take that out of my life. But, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ 
didn't simply say violently take sin out of your life. He said if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So the person may say they want self-control, but they might not want to exercise it. They might not really want to exercise that self-control. And if you aren't willing to exercise the self-control in the small things and in the big things and start implementing these principles from God's word into your life and do violence to your temptations, then you just have a form of godliness, but you're denying the power thereof. So do violence to your temptations. Because if you're not putting sin to death, it'll be putting, sin will be putting you to death. You can be sure of that. I think that was John Owen who said that. Maybe I could be wrong about that. So do violence to your temptations. Don't think that God's just going to zap you and make you self-controlled, whether it's when you're converted or at some point later on in your life. You need to be, if you're a Christian, exercising self-control. And so if, once we understand that principle from the Scripture, we understand that if we are Christians, God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, and we are called to stir up the grace of God that is in us. And we are not to sit back as the confession says, and wait for a special prompting from the Spirit. Once we understand that, we won't be able to say, well, I've not been able to exercise self-control in the past, so there's no hope for me. This is just a thorn in my flesh. This is my one struggle, and the Lord doesn't want me to have victory over it. We won't be able to say that, because we'll understand that we are required to make our calling and election sure by exercising self-control. Well, time fails me, so... I just want to end with this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Self-control is not the end in and of itself. Loving God and glorifying him and enjoying him forever is the end. Self-control is a means to that end. And being self-controlled doesn't make you a dour, pessimistic person unless you attempt to do it outside of Christ. So if you're a Christian, you can follow God's precepts and have joy and have victory over sin in your life. If you, if you attempt to do this outside of Christ, you will fail miserably. And I pray that you would look to Christ and cast yourself before him. That he would change your heart. And I pray that we would all be self-governed and self-controlled because it's, it's very important. And those who are not uh, put themselves in a, in a woeful condition where they have no, no assurance. But self-control can bring peace and comfort. And it's a means to the end of glorifying God and loving him. Well, join me in prayer now to close. I feel like that was taking a drink from a fire hydrant, but hopefully that was helpful. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time, and I pray that uh, you would take your word, uh, the truth of your word. I pray that it was communicated through my lips, uh, and I pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that we would be self-governed people under the lordship of Christ who control our mind, our emotions, our anger, and all these areas, Lord. And that we would make our calling and election sure by being self-controlled, as well as the other things that uh, the Apostle Peter mentions. Help us now to, as we go to, to worship together, to hear your word and reverently obey you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.